So we're glad that you're here. Welcome to part two of a series we're calling It's Complicated. It's a series on relationships. And if you missed last week, then uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a recap. But if, if all of this interests you and you're interested in uh, learning more about it or, or whatever, or you have to be gone for the next two weeks, we're going to do two more weeks of this thing. It's a four-part series. Um, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. There's video uh, and audio podcast type stuff, and you can catch up in that way. But the idea is that, <clears throat> listen... Anytime you say, oh, we're going to talk about relationships, there's like part, and it's not even half. I almost said like half and half, but it's not half. I don't know what the ratio is uh, for Archer specifically, but there's some people in the room who are like, yes, relationships. And there are other people like, ugh, just when I started to like this church, right? And and we kind of treat it the same way that we treat a car. We, we don't want to deal with it. We just want to get it from point A to point B, and we just want them to work. We just want relationships to work. And when they're not working, if, if something's rattling in your car, some of you go, let's figure this thing out. Let's take it to a mechanic tomorrow. And some of you just go on the radio and just, I would, I just want to ignore it for a little bit, right? If there's something broken, I don't want to hear it. And if I can just ignore it through some other things, if I can create noise in other places, uh, then I don't have to deal with it when it comes to relationships. So that's definitely sometimes what we do. And last week we said, we all enter into relationships with some idea of what the future of the relationship is going to look like. We all carry in, we call it a box, a box of hopes, dreams, and desires. And last week I had this box, and it's actually down there, but the letters started falling off, and I didn't want to embarrass myself with bad spelling. So I don't have it there, but hopes, dreams, and desires, and inside that box we put uh, things that we feel like are what healthy relationships look like, based on what we've seen, based on what we've heard, and based on what we've experienced. Based on if we came from a family who have parents who have a great marriage relationship, or an aunt and an uncle who, when you think about a great marriage, they had it when they, they just celebrated 30 years of of being together or 40 years of being together or something like that. And you're like, that's what I want. So we try and recreate that in some way. Well, this is how they did it. So that probably makes sense, you know, in terms of what we should do or in, in, in ways of avoiding it as well. Like we look at it and be like, that was so broken. My parents' relationship was so broken. That's how they did it. And I want nothing to do with it. Right. Or I don't even want to be in a long-term relationship. Let's not get married. That's just, it seems like a, a piece of paperwork and a, a piece of paper. And it, it doesn't make sense to me. And it doesn't work and mesh with my way of, of viewing the world or whatever. And so we each have our own individual box and everything that's in our box in terms of what we think it's going to take to make great relationships works makes sense to us, right? Everything in there goes, well, yeah, of course, this is how we should, we should definitely own a home. Well, why, why would we rent when we can own? We should definitely both work. Dual income's better than one and, and we'll figure out the whole kid situation later and, and maybe we'll make so much money. We're going to be so stinking rich that, that you can, we can both stay home and watch this kid. We can do all this kind of stuff. We have, we have expectations about what it's going to be and we approach, we go to the altar with these proverbial boxes. Nobody goes up with real boxes. Okay, that would be weird. Um, but you, you, go to the, you go up to the altar and you say, I do, and you exchange your box of hope streams and desires and to this other person the significant other, you say make these come true for me right i want you to do whatever you can do to make these things come true for me but on the flip side of our box last week we realized was hope dreams and desires to us feels like expectations to the other person and they would say well that feels like you're expecting things from me oh no no, no these are just what i hope dream and desire I know, but it feels like you're expecting me to do something as a, as a result of this. And so uh, that, that's been a huge kind of struggle for this. And when it feels like expectations, when, when the other person goes, that's, that's not what they hope, dream, and desire. Like, they want that for me. And if I don't follow through on these, then we have, there's fault in our relationship that's not working out the way it sh should be. We begin negotiating with one another. We engage in what's called a compromise-based relationship. I'll do some of these things for you. I see what you have. I see the expectations that you have for me. I have 
describe some things that I am expecting of you. And if you, if you, then I will, if you do this, then I will do this. And we begin this, what's called a, uh, a compromise type relationship and or an expectations based relationship. And when we do that, unknowingly, we engage in a debt debtor sort of relationship. Because all of a sudden, when I do something for you and then you don't do something for me, I categorize it as you owe me. And we begin to keep this uh, proverbial uh, scoreboard. And it's not like an actual piece of paper at home, but you've got it going on your mind about, well, I did this or I bought this for Valentine's Day. I I spent $150 on gifts and she bought me like a $5 toy, right? That's not the same thing. Or or we said, well, let's let's buy you a car. We we just need to get you a car and we're going to get you something really nice. And then you in return bought me like a basketball, which is great, but like... Those are total. That's a totally different thing, right? And we're, we're not equal at this point, right? That's that's cool. Thank you for the basketball, but we're not equal because you owe me more. You owe me more. And here's the thing about owing people: if you owe me money, then you cannot give me money. Okay? If for some reason there are life circumstances that you happen to borrow a hundred dollars from me, listen, I'm a cheap sucker. I probably would never do it. But if somehow it happened, you owed me a hundred dollars and two weeks later you came to me and said, Brent, I just wanted to give you 20 bucks. Here you go. Here's a gift. I do not view that as a gift. I view that as partial repayment for the money that you owe me. And my next question is always, where's the rest of it? Do you know what I mean? Now you only owe me $80. Oh, no, 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 this was a gift. Oh, I don't see it as a gift. This is not a gift. This is you still owe me money. You still owe me something. And so therefore, when you're saying you're trying to say, oh, I'm just giving this out of generosity. I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be loving. Um, I don't view it as such. I don't view it as love. We don't receive it as love. We can't even see it as love. And so when you engage in a give and give back and debt debtor type of relationship, any act of love that your partner has towards you, if you feel like they owe you, you don't see it as love and you do not receive it as love. You receive it as partial repayment for what they owe you. And they get frustrated because it feels like this is a no-win situation. I can't do anything to please you because you've got this imaginary scoreboard and I'm always losing how do I deal with that? So the last week we said one of the most important questions you could ever answer as a, as a happy married couple, um, and, and one of the, the questions that happy married couples always know the answer to is this, what does the other person owe me? What does she owe me? What do they owe me? What do they owe me? Happy couples know the answer to that question is always nothing. They owe me nothing. Now, because of the commitment I made to them and the vows that I made to them, I owe them everything, but they owe me nothing in return to which immediately we go, Hey, wait a second. Hold on question. That doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense. I understand that. But happy couples know the answer to that question is I go into it, my own hopes, dreams, and desires. I am responsible to try and do my best to make her hopes and dreams or his hopes and dreams and desires come true. And I expect nothing in return. And that just doesn't make any sense, Brent. I know I get it. Now, I introduced a text to kind of bring justification, scriptural justification for why this is true for Christians last week. And I just kind of threw it out there. It comes from the book of John. We're going to dive into it a little bit more. Um, John was an interesting uh, writer for a New Testament because um, he wrote his gospel last. There's basically four gospels in the New Testament. Gospels are the stories and the, the, the life and the teaching of Jesus, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they make up the first four books in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all kind of written with the same 
sort of timeline, the same sort of language. It feels like three different accounts, but like, but very, very similar. Like in terms of, there were three people at the same movie. They all wrote about the movie. The plot's the same. Everything's, but like based on their personality, they're a little bit different. John's feels a little like mostly different than the, the three. It's still about you. Still feel like he saw the movie, but he's got a background. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or he's got a history, or he's got a unique perspective on it. So that's the book of John. And in this uh, writing. John records a memory that he had because John was one of Jesus' disciples. See, Luke wasn't one of the disciples. Luke interviewed the disciples, um, and uh, Matthew was one of his disciples, but wrote specifically to a Jewish audience. John is writing to try and talk about uh, who Christ was in a super meaningful way. So not like factual, this is what happened, but let me tell you about who Christ was. The, the term that a lot of theologians use is a very high Christology, meaning highly spoke of Christ, okay? So John records this story about Jesus that is meant to kind of illustrate the significance of who Jesus said he was and who his disciples viewed him as. And it comes to us hours before he's arrested and put on trial and eventually crucified and does all that. The whole Garden of Gethsemane, the whole Easter thing that we celebrate, that's all like really close. It's close to that, but just before that. And in this scenario, Jesus takes his disciples um, for the Passover ceremony. This would be a very sacred thing for the Jewish people um, where they would um, share a meal together. And and in the course of this meal, they would recapture the imagination uh, through kind of the different activities of breaking bread and and wine. uh, Remember the events that took place for them in Egypt hundreds of years prior. Remember when we were slaves and God, Yahweh God, interacted in our lives and basically sent us Moses to do all these 10 plagues and then launched us out of Egypt and gave us our own promised land. That was like the very first instance we knew that God was for us. And so we celebrate that through Passover. He gathers these, these people together and, uh, and begins to stand up in front of them and talk about Passover and talk about commands. Now, for the Jewish audience, which he includes all of, you know, like his, his disciples were all Jewish and John's writing was, would be read by Jewish people as well. Uh, for them, the hierarchy of how the, uh, the patriarchy of, of mankind or the history of like religious figures existed in this way, God Abraham and Moses. Okay. God, Yahweh, God, huge, big. Abraham was the first uh, Jewish person. He was the first one called by God. He's going to, God makes him a promise. I'm going to make you into this mighty nation. And then Moses comes really uh, on the scene as the lawgiver of God. That's how they viewed Moses. Um, so Moses was uh, picked, handpicked by God. I'm going to tell you what I expect of my people. I'm going to, I'm, one, I'm going to have you lead them out of Egypt and into this new land. And I'm going to give you law. I'm going to let you in on what I'm expecting of them through the Ten Commandments and through uh, all of the different laws that you can read about in the first five books of the Old Testament. So for them, Moses was like a big time figure as a lawgiver. Jesus comes on the scene. And in the stories, he records it in chapter 13, breaks bread with them during the Passover meal and said, this bread represents my body broken for you. And this wine represents my blood that is going to be shed for you. To which the disciples would be like, no, 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 no. 
um, Jesus, you're taking a very sacred religious holiday where this wine represented the blood of the lamb that was hung on the doorpost so that the angel of death passed over. This is the Passover. This is the very, you're taking, you're stealing, from, you're stealing from a story of our national heritage and making it about yourself. And Jesus is like, I know, I'm not done yet either, right? Then after doing that, to which I think a lot of the disciples would be like, oh my goodness, like this is very heretical. Um, if, if word got out about what he's doing and what he's claiming here, he's claiming to be better than the Passover ceremony. He's claiming to be that that whole thing was really about him. And then he goes on and he says this, a new command I give you. See, we don't understand the significance of this statement that Jesus makes. Moses gave new commands to Israel. Every subsequent teacher or rabbi or religious figure of that day could exegete or translate or interpret the commands, but nobody was allowed to give new commands. We take the Ten Commandments or we take what Moses taught us and let's, let's extrapolate that into how we then live our lives now. But no rabbi ever gave new commands. You didn't do that. Because to do that would be to say that Moses was not enough or that we are better than Moses. And nobody would ever make that kind of statement because they'd probably be killed. So Jesus not only takes the Passover thing and makes it about himself. He then goes on to say a new command I give you to which all the disciples must have been like, Oh Jesus, if listen, we're cool. Cause like we're your buddies and stuff. But if there was somebody in this room that really wanted to get you in trouble, the words that you're saying right now would be something that would justify public defamation for you. And also probably being stoned to death or crucified, which they didn't know at that time, but that's exactly what would take place. Right? A new command I give you. Oh boy. And they're like sitting there probably with like, everything's kind of tense. Everything's tightened up. Love one another. And then immediately like, oh good. Oh, that's easy. I mean, like that's already out there. That's not that hard. Love one another. You said this publicly when one time in a public setting, you were asked what's the most important thing uh, about the, like, could you summarize all of the Hebrew law into one thing? And Jesus would say, uh, not really one, but two really uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And everybody's like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause that makes sense of like the Torah and the old Testament law. And that, that all can work in there. And here he says, I'm giving you a new command. Love one another. Doesn't sound really new. And Jesus says, again, I'm not done yet. Let me continue. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus essentially takes what we know as the golden rule, right? The golden rule is uh, the whole idea of love your neighbor as yourself or treat others the way that you would want to be treated. That's the golden rule, right? And what's funny about the golden rule is that that kind of transcends Christianity in, in, I, there's like stuff in scripture or stuff in, in studies about how that wasn't even probably original with, with scripture. That kind of, that idea has been teased out of all of these other different world religions. And if you're kind of one of those guys who's trying to figure out where, you know, where Christianity fits and I, I don't know what I believe yet, but I'm trying to explore. And it seems like there are some crossover in terms of some teaching. This would be a point of crossover. The golden rule is not exclusive to Christianity, right? Treat other people the way that you would want to be treated. That feels like a baseline for humanity. In fact, 
I think no matter where you're at in terms of religious spectrum, you and I would both agree if humanity today lived that out, there would be a lot less school shootings. There would be a lot less stuff going on in the Middle East. There'd be a lot less stuff in the world. That's a pretty good rule to apply whether you're religious or not. Just treat others the way that you would want to be treated. Our world would function at a much healthier level if that were true. But Jesus says in this moment, I got a new command for you. Yes, that's true. But let me also then superimpose something significant on top of that. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. You heard of the golden rule. I'm about to give you the platinum rule. Jesus says, here's the platinum one. Here's the new updated version. You ready? Platinum rule. Treat others the way God in Christ treated you. You treat others the way that God in Christ has treated you. And I imagine at that point, he could have paused and kind of gone around the room and done like specific illustrations with each person. Gone to Matthew and be like, Matthew, real quick, where were you? What were you doing before I met you? And Matthew would be like, well, I was a tax collector. I was a tax collector, right? What do you mean tax collector? Well, if you've been around, we've talked about Matthew before. Matthew's role and job was one that was... I mean, like the worst of the worst, right? right? Hired by the Romans to take taxes from the Jewish people and pay off the Romans. And if you do it effectively, you get a cut of the deal. So essentially, if you can take advantage of your Jewish brothers and sisters, um, you can get rich off of it. And it took a lot of money to get into it. You had to like pay a high fee to be able to have the license to be a tax collector. So you knew exactly. It wasn't like you fell into this. Like you invested your money so that you could take advantage of other people. And people typically don't like people getting rich off taking advantage of them. And so you can imagine the bitterness that Jewish people had towards Jewish tax collectors. They were the lowest of the low. In fact, when in the the writings of the New Testament, when Jesus is confronted by his disciples about not hanging out with the wrong people, it's like there's two categories. Jesus, we don't really want to be seen with sinners and tax collectors. Like tax sinners are like, hey, we've done some pretty bad stuff. We classify ourselves, self-identify as sinners but we don't want to be associated with tax collectors. Are you kidding me? That, that's its own separate category. So Jesus looks at Matthew and says, remember, how, remember when I approached you, what were you doing? You were a tax collector in your booth, literally actively on the job. And what did I say to you? I said, come and follow me. What'd you do? He says, I left everything and I followed you. And what did we do after that? I threw a party at my house. I invited all my sinner and tax collector buddies. Friday night, poker night, I invited you. We had the disciples there and we all went and hung out and you sat and had dinner, which was basically a very public way of not affirming them, but associating with the worst of the worst to your own potential detriment socially. And then he turned to Peter and be like, Peter, you remember that night? Peter's like, yeah, I do. What'd you say to me that night? I told you we shouldn't be going hanging out with them. That's what I told you. I said, if my mama knew that I was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, she'd be like, you really are throwing your life away. You really, not only did you leave this family industry, but now you're, you're following a guy who has no problems and no qualms associated with people like that. And Jesus is like, yeah, I did. Yeah, we did that. That's exactly what happened. And, and you, you came at it with like this exclusive mentality and you were kind of obsessed with your own self-image and social image and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know what? It's okay. I didn't kick you out. I didn't say, quit being a jerk, Peter. Fine. Y- you know, this, isn't, this is, maybe isn't for you. 
He says, no, I, I, I let you, I, I, I allowed you to participate in that and you didn't even want to, but you've grown so much as a result of this. And he turns to a guy named Nathaniel, probably Nathaniel. You remember when I called you? Remember when you said, I, I, I'll follow you. Remember one of the things that you said, I remember hearing this story through the grapevine about what you said about where I came from. One time Jesus, uh, or sorry, Nathaniel is, is out and, and he hears the story of, of this Jewish prophet who's teaching and his name's Jesus and he's gathering this great following. And, t- and he's like, tell me more about this guy. What, what's he teaching? Where's he from? Well, he's from Nazareth. Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? That's like recorded. That's what he's known for. Jesus looks at Nathaniel like, you remember when you dissed my entire family? Where I came from, my whole t-ball team? You remember when you said, what good? can come from Nazareth, and I still let you be a part of this thing. I could have like brought you in and then asked where you're from and then kicked you out as a result of this, and I didn't do that. I never even brought it up again. Did I ever bring it up again? Well, you bring it up right now. Touche. But <laughs> I never brought it up again. He's saying, oh, listen, nobody's here around this dinner table, this thing, this feast that we're participating in. Nobody in here deserved any of this. I loved you even when you did not deserve to be loved. Now take that. And as I have loved you, so you must go and love one another as a result of this. I mean, that would dramatically reshape the disciples' minds as they would go out of that and over the next few hours and days would watch their master be uh, arrested, crucified, risen again, and then three days later uh, be able to be like, now go and tell this to the world. Go and tell my story all about who I am to the world and expand the church in this way. I mean, this would be a revolutionary thing for them. It would become one of the central points of his teaching. It would cause them to do things as a young and early church that did not make sense in the eyes of the world, how they treated invalids, how they treated people who didn't, uh, how they treated women, how they treated slaves, how they treated kids, how they treated um, people who were sick, people who were disabled, how, how, all of this, all of this new shaping, it didn't make sense in the eyes of the world. It made sense to them. And the only reason it's made sense to them is because Jesus at one point told them, as I have loved you, so you must go out and love one another. All of the New Testament teaching and imperatives tee off of this one big idea. Listen, Paul uh, would be a guy who would later write a bunch of letters that were captured together to be a part of the New Testament. But originally, they just started off as letters. Paul did not sit down one day and be like, all right, I'm going I'm to write something that's going to be good enough to get in the Bible. You watch. I'm going to make this so good. They're going to they're gonna want it in there. The Bible didn't exist at that point. Or the, the New Testament, for sure. The Old Testament would have existed as, as Hebrew teaches, but they would have never thought, well, we can add to that. He writes this simple letter to the ch- a church in Ephesus. And uh, it's known to us as the book or the letter of Ephesians. Um, and in that moment, he's just simply trying to give practical advice to them. We, we've talked about this in the, the previous couple of weeks, chapters one through three about our identity in Christ, four through six about what it means to live that out. And in that idea of what it means to live it out, he would say, practically speaking, if you were to take the teaching of Jesus and to love others in the same way that, that God through Christ has loved you, here's what it would look like relationally. And in chapter five, we get a very specific application when it comes to households, when it comes to husbands and wives and kids and employees and whatever. And there's an there's a interpretation in here, or there's, a, there's a, a, a verse in here that I want to read through that I think is so important. A couple of verses that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about here. For, uh, chapter five, verse 22, very specific application of what it means to love uh, others in the way that God through Christ has loved you. Verse five, verse 22, or chapter five, verse 22, wives. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, 
There's a couple of you in this room going, this verse is why I hate church and the Bible. And a pastor preached this verse a few years ago, and then he's like, well, let's just close in prayer and hope that this takes place in every household. In our and I was like, ah, I'm out. I'm so out. I'm not, I'm not even closing my eyes for this prayer. I'm invalidating this prayer by not even closing my eyes for it, right? Um, it frustrates us. It rubs the, us the wrong way. I, I get it. Now, again, um, here's what's interesting about this letter, right? Paul did not write this to be able to, this, this will be New Testament scripture. This was just wisdom for living this thing out. He would then, uh, or the recipients of this letter, this church in Ephesus would read this whole letter and be like, this is really good stuff. We should copy this and send it to other churches. It became what's called a circular letter. All right. So we're going to make copies of this and we're going to send it to the church in Colossae and the church in Galatia and all of these churches that kind of started. And as the early church network kind of spread, a lot of his letters would be like, this was really good for us. It might be of practical value for you. So here's a letter that Paul wrote to us. Those would be expanded. It wouldn't be until hundreds of years later where the church would be like, we should take some of these letters, combine them all and form our own New Testament scriptures. We have these Jewish scriptures. Perhaps this wisdom needs to be canonized for all ages, not just for our current circumstance. That, that whole canonization of the New Testament would come, but it, would, it wouldn't come for many years later. And years later, they would go, all right, if we're, what do we think of all of the literature that's currently in circulation? What do we think was so inspired by God to be relevant for the church for ages to come? This letter, Ephesians, would have made one of the would have made the cut. We should include this one. All right. Well, let's gather all of our different copies of Ephesians because we don't have the original letter. We don't have the you know pen and parchment from Paul himself. We have copies and copies and copies. Um, so let's gather some of those together and let's figure out what as close to the original as we can. So they would collect different manuscripts. Again, years and years later, be like, well, we found these these documents over here. We found some documents over here. Documents over here. Documents over here. And they're not exact perfect because like any good game of telephone, you start off with one end saying, I got this, this, this. And then by the end, it's like, I own a, a you know, a suburban and it's from, you know, whatever. And you're like, what in the world? How did we get there? That kind of takes place. However, um, this difference would be so minimal. A lot of the times it would be a, a writing thing. And so um, there'd be a, an apostrophe missing or a, a comma missing. They didn't have punctuation in the Greek literature, but those types of, there'd be a certain letter that's off or a certain word that's missing or something that's taking place. But they would gather all these letters together and be like, what's the most likely combination or what do we think he said based on what we have? And then they would produce those or that would be canonized into scripture or in the collection of literature that would become known eventually as our Bible. Now, I say all that because in the earliest manuscripts that we have and the oldest ones that we've been able to post date of the book of Ephesians, there is a significant word that is missing from Ephesians chapter five, verse 22. Here's what our earliest versions have said. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, what's missing from that is the most offensive part of that scripture, right? Um, why is it missing in that way? Well, the reason it's missing is because it feels like if something is missing from there, a very common way of writing would be, if it's not there, at some point it was said and it's meant to be applied to all of these things. So you have to go back. If it's not there and it doesn't make sense, let's, let's reverse course, right? If you came in the middle of a conversation and you're like, hang on, reverse, go back. What are we talking about here? Okay, good. Now we're going back. What's the context for this verse? Chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Paul is saying in this household, if we are to love 
each other, will love one another in the same way that Christ, God through Christ has loved us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, this is meant to be played out through all of these things. And it's missing from this one because it's assumed that you would have read verse 21 prior to reading verse 22. You cannot jump in midway through a letter and assume that you know the context for everything. It would be to go back and say, Paul would say, listen, here's how really great relationships work. Mutual submission, husbands, wives, moms, kids, dads, kids. If you want it to work great, this is the secret. This is the secret sauce towards making relationships work and marriage is great. Mutual, mutual submission. And he goes in immediately and he he starts it off with wives to your husbands. And then the hard part is, then he goes into the husband spot and he doesn't specifically say the word submit to which we think, well, it belonged in the women's one. doesn't belong in the men's one. And to which if we were reading it fully, we would be like, oh no, no, no. It was said at the beginning and it's meant to be assumed or inferred throughout the entire thing. This mutual submission towards the rest of it. In other words, we are saying we may have different talents, abilities, responsibilities, and roles, but we do not have different value. Now, this would have been, there are parts of this that would have made sense in that context and then, but not in ours, and then flip that around and reverse it, okay? Somebody reading verse 22, the whole wives submit to your husband's thing, in that context would have been like, well, of course, right? We know, listen, it's not a, it's not a, a, a Christian or a, 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 a specifically Roman. Well, during that time in the Roman Empire, can you believe it that men were treated in a greater uh, value than women? Like that for, in world history, that feels like a, a, uh, a thing that is not surprising to us. We're not like, oh, shocking. Those Romans, those terrible. That's just like how humanity has operated for so stinking long in that way. It's not odd for them. But in, in this culture, um, in, in, in the Roman and Greek culture, uh, a lot of times women would be classified as a child until they got married. And, and, and even when they got married, they would be almost treated as property, uh, something above like a piece of land or a, a slave, but like not definitely not egalitarian, not equal at all. It would be a, a responsibility to the husband if you wanted, you know, all, the, all this kind of stuff. And so for, for Paul to write um, this first verse, it bristles at us and it should The reason we are uncomfortable, the reason right now that you're going, Brent, you better tie this a bow around this very quickly because I'm slightly offended at verse 22. I get it. It's good that you bristle at that because we live in a culture that has come around to to, uh, accept equality and embrace equality between men and women. And we like it. Guess where that idea or who, guess who introduced this quality into history? It did not come around naturally. You have thousands of years of existence to show you that that does not come around naturally. We get a glimpse of it right here. This idea of equality within a relationship, this idea of mutual submission is so big in this moment. Ephesians chapter 25, or sorry, chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ 
loved the church and gave himself up for her. Treat her in the same way that you would treat your own body is what he goes on to say. And this verse right here, this just as Christ loved the church, um, we know how the story of how Jesus loved the church and the extent at which he would show his love and sacrifice himself for that. We know how the story ends. We celebrate it every Easter, and that sounds painful. Yes, Paul would say, assuming this submission is taking place, here's what you then get, to, uh, get a chance to do. This, was, this would be scandalous for this time. Men would read this and they'd be like, if this got out, we would never have any male converts to this religion ever again. Now, women will flock to this, and they did, by the way. The church, early church, was filled with women and children and disenfranchised individuals. Slaves could come and experience for an hour or a couple of hours each, day, each week a meal with their masters who, when they left the doors, just because of the context of the culture that they lived in, their life would be different six days a week. And for one brief moment, it would feel like there's a sense of equality and a treatment of equality in those moments. The church was a safe haven in that way. And in this sense... Paul is saying, you take that into your marriage relationship too. You experience mutual submission. Oh, but Paul, our culture says, I don't have to do this. He's like, I don't care about what your culture says. Jesus said, you treat others the way that God in Christ treated you. So this, this is how I want you to play this out. This is what I want you to do. Listen, this is why I think every woman should be like, I'm, I, I'm into this Jesus thing. It changed the game for them. He argued for your worth, your identity, your dignity before it was a talking point for anybody else in the world. In fact, there's a Catholic writer. Her name is Dorothy Day. Um, she uh, lived kind of a, an erratic lifestyle in her youth. I read this little biography about her, an amazing story, very individualistic for a while. And then all of a sudden came to grips with how empty kind of a lifestyle was. And she began to kind of explore for herself where, where do I find a resonance? Where do I find meaning and purpose in, in all, of, all of these things? And she began to explore Christianity, specifically Catholic Christianity. And um, the, here's what she says about, here's why I finally chose to follow Jesus. I, it's going to be on the screen. I'm going to read through it and I'll try and go fast. I think I've never heard a sermon preached on the story of Martha and Mary that did not attempt somehow to explain away its text. Mary's, of course, was the better part, and the Lord said so, and we must not precisely contradict them. But Martha was doing a really feminine job, whereas Mary was just behaving like any other disciple, male or female, and that is a hard pill to swallow. You remember the story? Jesus comes to the house. Mary and Martha, they're friends, and they're friends of Jesus. They have a brother named Lazarus. They're like best friends, all small group. And he comes over to their house. And Martha's in the kitchen, and Mary's out in the living room, and she's just sitting at the feet of Jesus like all of the rest of the men. And Martha's like, you shouldn't be in there. You should be doing the work of me. And Jesus says, no, she's chosen rightly. In that moment, I've always kind of thought of, oh, yeah, this is a, uh, this is a good passage in terms of understanding that I shouldn't get busy with other things, and I shouldn't focus on distractions but focus on Jesus. But I, I think I failed to see the statement that he's making in terms of gender identity in this moment. He's like treating her as if she was one of the disciples. And in this moment, this is a safe place for her to be a follower of Christ in the same way that everybody else is deserving of my attention, deserving of my love and all of, all of these things. So then this is Dorothy Day continuing on. Perhaps it is no wonder that the woman 
were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never uh, made crude jokes about them, who rebuked without demeaning and praised without condescension, who took their questions and their arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. She goes, I, I saw that, and I look at where history is headed. Again, she's, she was writing uh, a, a little bit later in the 20th century, and so this is, it, it's definitely not even perfect. It's not even, it's not like we, we've arrived and now we're here for her. It's like, but when I look back and I go, where did this kind of inception start towards us being viewed on this equal basis? I see it played out in the life and the teaching of Jesus. I see it played out in, in Paul's admonishments towards married men and women and, and submitting one another and asking men to submit to their wives out, out of reverence for Christ and, and, and in a culture where that would just be unacceptable in any other context. And I see the progress being made in this. Now, granted, it took the church and the world a long time to catch up with this teaching, right? Because I mean, there's for every story that I say about this, you'd be like, well, yeah, but how come this and how come and how come and how come? Get it. Listen, not perfect. But in this moment, if you look at it, you see the advancement to what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to place them. Listen, this is an equal thing. Each of you are bringing hopes, dreams, and desires into a relationship. And you, it, the only, only way it's going to work is if you engage in mutual submission towards one another. It's, it's only going to work if each of you ask yourself the question, what is life to me? What is life to me? And then to put him or to put her above that. What's life to me? What is it all about? What's this, like, what gets me going? And then to say, all right, submit that, slide that down the priority scale and put her hopes and dreams and desires above my own. And I don't expect anything in return. This is not, I'll do it as long as you do it. Mutual submission. So really quick homework. Last week I said, you all, you enter into a relationship, every relationship with hope, streams, desire, box of, of what you think it's going to look like. I said, it's important for you to know what those things are. You need to ask yourself the question internally, what's in my box? It's not enough to be like, well, I don't know. Um, because you operate with some sort of a base knowledge for them. And when they're not meeting your expectations, there's frustration in a relationship and relationships break down. So you're asking them essentially to live up to these, these things that you don't even know the definition of. What do you want in life? I don't even know. What do you freaking want? You know what I mean? That's important. And then the second question to that, the follow-up question was, are you asking somebody else to carry that box for you? Today, the question that I want you to ask now is, do you know what's in their box? To actually ask the question, What's in your box? Now, here's what's really going to be frustrating, right? This is going to be an easy question if you're like dating and you're like, I don't really know you. Let's, let's go to Starbucks and let's talk about what's in your box and let's write it all down. And he's so interested in me. This is so great. It's going to be a little bit harder if you've been married for 15 or 20 years, okay? Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to say, what's in your box, babe? And she's going to be like, you should know this already. We have kids. We have a history. You know what I mean? This is not going to be an easy one for those of you in relationship, but it's, it's really, so take this as permission. Listen, you could be like, well, uh, listen, I already know it's in your box, but Brent said I should probably ask this question out loud. So ah, this seems silly and redundant, but for the sake of appeasing Brent, let's ask the question, what's in your box? I can fill it out for you, but you, you do it. Just 
because I don't want to say things out of, out of turn. So anyways, ask them what's in your box. And then step two, this might be a little hard for some of you, but this is important. Uh, stop talking. At that point, you just shut up. It's really simple. What's in your box? And then I don't be like, oh, yeah, that's in my box too. And let me tell you a little bit more about my box because I'm really into me. I'm, I'm, I'm way into, to, I like me some me. Uh, so let me, let's talk about me again. Stop talking. <laughs> what's in your box? What can I do? How can I grow in putting you and taking my picture of what is life about for me and then saying, I submit to you? Now, real quickly, initial pullback, initial reaction, and it's, it's a violent reaction, is, well, they don't deserve it. Um, and thinking about what percentage of people don't deserve this in relationships, uh, that number hovers right around 100%, okay? Um, I'm not saying do this because they deserve it. If you felt that way, you would have already been doing this. The reason you're not is because you don't feel like they deserve it. And that's not even the motivation for what Jesus is saying. He's not saying do this because they deserve it. That would be easy. Jesus is saying, I want you to submit to one another out of reverence, out of awe, out of respect for Christ, out of what has been done to you. So they're not going to deserve it. And you could say, well, Brent, I mean, he owes me or she owes me or she, all this kind of stuff. I get it. Or, or you could say this, fine, but she goes first. <laughs> fine, I'm in. She goes first. He goes first. Listen, that's not, that's not really playing the game either. I mean, that's not really, that, that's not participating in it. That's again, I'll do it if you do it. If you, then I. Let's just back into it. Listen, happy couples go first. If you want to make relationships work and marriage great, you go first. And you might be taken advantage of. You might. And then you get to understand and get the feeling of what Christ has done for you over and over and over again, who continuously loves you on your behalf, even when you're not deserving of it. And even when you respond and be like, cool, I got it. Thanks. I'm good. And don't respond out of like a thankfulness or gratitude for grace, but like out of an expectation, like I came to church. So you kind of owe me good stuff anyway. So this is great. I've been a pretty good person, so I kind of, I mean, you kind of owe this to me, right? And Jesus continues to chase us and continues to love us, even when it doesn't make sense and even when we take advantage of him. And he says, if until you understand that I'm already done that and am doing that for you, you'll never do it for somebody else. So coming to grips with that even in our own life. So, the follow-up question to that is, then what do you do about your box? If I'm supposed to do this for them and make their hopes and dreams and desires come true, what about my hopes, dreams, and desires? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. I hope you come back. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> this is extremely difficult. And again, we will never get there until we truly understand the grace that has been extended to us. The, the only way to do that, or the only way to do any of all of this is to understand um, that it has been done for us. And that becomes our motivation for it. 
And if we continue to operate in, in a religious-based environment where I've done, I live a pretty good life and you give me a pretty good eternal life or you, know, you give me blessings in accordance with my good deeds, then, then we'll never get there. Then it's just a broken system and it, it doesn't even make sense to us. And we find more value in the golden rule of treating others the way that we wouldn't want to treat. And that's fine and that's good. And it's, it, I mean, if, again, if humanity operated in that, that would be uh, way better than the version that we've got currently. But you ask us for more, and, uh, and Christianity is a call to a higher standard than that. And so uh, for those of us who are up for the challenge, may we this week reflect more on what has on the grace that has been extended to us and then figure out how to re- reflect that into the intimate relationship that we care about most. Help us to live in mutual submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life. Curse act on it in your name. Amen.